Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And before we get into the podcast, I uh, just want to mention real quick, we have a new sponsor, uh, new sponsor, Netflix. So pay attention, uh, tune back in later on in the podcast. We're going to have a special offer uh, related to Netflix. And now for the topic of today. Yeah, uh, this one stems from your recent journey to New York for the World Science Festival 2012. How was it? I like how you say journey like I was in a covered wagon. Well, it's kind of a journey. You have to go to Atlanta's airport. So That's true. That is a journey in it's and of itself. Kind of traumatic. It was wonderful. World Science Festival 2012. Um, got to see a lot of really cool panels, and one of them was um, on the science of narrative. And it had... Um, Bunch of people on it, um, including Joyce Carol Oates. Oh like yes, one of my favorite authors. Wonderfully of twisted author. Yeah. I mean, uh, so it was great to see her talk about the process of writing. And um, Dr. Kevin Oatley was mm-hmm. another person, a psychologist, who who talked about it. Um, several others. I don't have. Oh yes, uh, the author of Middle Sex. Yeah, Jeffrey Eugene needs, uh, like Eugene and IDES at the mm-hmm. end, if I'm saying that correctly. He's also the author of Virgin Suicides. Oh, yes. And he read... And an, uh, I think The Marriage Plot is his new one, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. But he read an incredible um, excerpt from Virgin Suicides to talk about some of what we'll talk about today, which is how readers are engaged in this world and meant to feel as though they occupy it themselves, so much so that they begin to... Um, to really feel a reality in the text, and it's and what's awesome about that too is that sometimes the realities you're immersed in are kind of nightmaric. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, for example, uh, I recently read her book Zombie, which is mm-hmm. kind of a fictionalized narrative based on the life of Jeffrey Dahmer. So you have a very disturbed individual who is plotting and trying to carry out these murders uh, so that he can create a a zombie out of somebody and keep them in in his cellar as mm-hmm. a it's like kind of a sex slave. So it's a very dark tale. But you're so immersed in the narrative, you find yourself kind of rooting in for the guy. I mean, you're feeling for him because mm-hmm. she's a talented writer. And via the narrative experience, you kind of become this character. And on some level, you want him to succeed. And it's, it's it can be a very weird feeling. Uh, in some of these it, books. it really messes with your mind, and that's really what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this idea that, that fiction uh, we usually think of as separate from ourselves, but the idea is can fiction transform our reality? And uh, we were discussing this earlier that, you know, usually you think, okay, the truth is stranger than fiction, uh, but sometimes that truth is actually inspired by fiction. And um, what I'm thinking about and what we talked about is uh, this incredibly bizarre spate of bath salts incidents oh God, yes. uh, that have been in the news. And by the time this airs, we'll probably have a lot more information about this. But uh, if you guys haven't heard about this, <laughs> this is actually a designer drug that is running amok. Yeah, not it's not actually bath salts. So you don't have to worry about, oh, my goodness, my grandma has some of those. She's going <laughs> to totally start eating space. She's going to have a, days. right, she's going to go have a cow gallon moment and then turn into a zombie. No. Uh, what we're talking about here, again, is a designer drug, and the key ingredients um, that go into it are something called MD 
PV. And I won't go way into that. Just think of it as a as sort of like a cross between meth and acid, uh, because the nervous system really kicks in to overdrive, and then a hallucinogenic state takes hold. Well, you know, meth is pretty bad, but but maybe the idea is here. Maybe if you add acid to it, the, <laughs> the experience is somehow better. So let, let's talk about what we're talking about. Uh, you, you mentioned the guy eating the other dude's face. Oh, well, I mean, basically, the, I think the scenario was you went out of town for a week, and then it seemed like the zombie holocaust almost Coincidence? Yeah. I don't know. Well, we did. We had the incident in Miami with the individual who allegedly on bath salts uh, is running around naked under an overpass, mm-hmm. uh, strips a homeless man, and eats most of his face off. For 18, 18 minutes. Yeah, and then the police finally show up, and... Uh, and he like turns around and snarls at them, and they end up shooting him down there in the street. And that alone was pretty crazy. And then you had all these other incidents that were showing up, incidents that involved someone confessing to acts of cannibalism, mm-hmm. uh, a man um, disemboweling himself and throwing his guts at police officers when they came to uh, attend to him, which incidentally reminds me of a great scene from uh, the uh, uh, Hong Kong film Story of Ricky, in which... Uh, oh, the Ballad of Ricky, yes. yes the st- yeah, in, in which uh, it's like a prison movie. Uh-huh, yeah, with, I was going to guess. With the most over-the-top violence ever, and there's a scene where an individual, um, is he, he gets beat by Ricky, because Ricky's like a Superman, and he has to fight these uh, these other villains inside the uh, the prison. And uh, the, the gore effects are super cheesy, but but kind of awesome. Like, they're so, it's so cartoony, you don't really feel the violence at all. But there is a character that um, slits his uh, stomach uh, in mm. an act of uh, seppuku, and then reaches in and grabs his own intestines out mm-hmm. and starts strangling Ricky with them. And, uh, it's hilarious slash gross. And also kind of awesome. Yeah. yeah. But but it's the kind of thing, it's hilarious slash gross when it's encountered in uh, a cheesy Hong Kong martial arts film. Perfectly fine there. But when it happens on the evening news, it is troubling. Well, and, uh, you know, the, the thread through all of these is that is zombie-like behavior, right? Right. Mindless, flesh-eating behavior cannot be reasoned with, can only be apparently gunned down on the streets like a dog. It it's troubling because it's one of those that we we've been laughing about zombies for years now. I mean, it's become it's become to the point where we're almost a little sick of it. Well, and it is so much uh, in the culture, right? I mean, The Walking Dead yeah. is is a show that is enormously popular mm-hmm. based uh, the, on the graphic novel. Yeah, the CDC had uh, in, in sort of jest yeah, had a, a zombie survival kit uh, about a year ago or so. Yeah, because they were raising. Uh, I think we've mentioned on a past episode. They were raising legitimate uh, concerns about uh, um, about diseases and the spread of disease and how to limit them and how to respond uh, to a situation where there's been some sort of an outbreak or a pandemic. All important stuff to know. And they were just sort of using zombies as a cool launching point to discuss that topic. And so you can kind of understand why these the, the spate of incidents happen and then people start to kind of go, wow, really? Is it like the zombie theme? Is fiction like that so deeply ingrained that it's being... Um, acted out in these very particular cases. Yeah, like, I mean, because at first, first people to, to comment on were probably like, hey, it looks like the zombie apocalypse is, is happening. And then they were like, oh, seriously, maybe it is. And they reminded us of, no, that's impossible. But maybe something <laughs> right, is going right. on in our minds right. where the idea of the zombie is so ingrained in us from our fiction that it ends up boiling to the surface of our reality. Well, CNN interviewed a former bath salts user. Uh, granted, this is just one person, but Freddie Sharp is his name, and he described his own experience. With That's who- a great bath salt user name, Freddie, Freddie Sharp. Sharp. I know, and because it's got the Freddie uh, from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street too. 
Freddie Sharp. Freddie Sharp. Anyway, uh, it's got that sort of image. But anyway, Freddie uh, described his experience when he was strapped into a gurney and restrained by a paramedic. He said that when he was hallucinating about being in a he he was hallucinating about being in a mental hospital and being possessed by Jason Voorhees <laughs> of uh, you know Friday the Thirteenth. Oh, he. I forget which one that is. There's a particular Friday the Thirteenth film where Jason Voorhees does possess people. It's generally not highly thought of. In the uh, in the saga, right, but, right, uh, but he does have basis uh, in canon for that behavior. Just just okay. let him off the hook right. a little bit. Uh, but it is it's very odd to see that. Um, I mean, it's not odd to know that we have this dark side of our psyches and that we have these themes, these horror themes that are uh, couched there. I mean, they could be the fairy tales that we read when we were little, or it could be you know Oedipus, right? Mm-hmm. Um, gouging out his own eyes or Friday the 13th or zombies. Um, I think what's scary is just to see that, you know, some of it is being played out. Uh, but we, what we really want to talk about is, is why we have these bits of fiction, these bits of storytelling in our minds. Um, it's so deeply entrenched in our minds yeah. and how we are actually working in concert with the material. Yeah, because there's the there's one view on everything where, you, and this is the view that uh, absolutely doesn't hold up to the research. But you still encounter it in plenty of people where fiction, it's eh, fairy tales. It's for kids. It's uh, it's like it's this bubble of fantasy or this bucket of fantasy that you stick your head into when you don't want to deal with everything else. Just right. pure escapism, no connection to real issues, reality, or anything. I've spoken to uh, at least one friend of mine about the the topic where um, he has to actually defend. Reading fiction to his father, who's 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 totally into to nonfiction and you know philosophical historical uh, works, uh, what have you, mm-hmm. and he has to actually defend fiction as a worthwhile thing to read. And I imagine that that's that's the sort of mindset he's coming from. The father, in, in this case, is that fantasy and, and fiction is something that exists outside of the norm and is completely detached. But uh, as we'll see in this episode, and as we saw in our, our research here, the um, the, the roots of fiction uh, are totally interwoven with our reality. Well, yeah, I mean, basically your friend and other listeners who may need to defend their own fiction consumption habits are, should emerge from this podcast with a list of bullet points about why you should read it. Right. Um, and one of the things we want to talk about is uh, how we lose ourselves in fiction and how that's so important to something called theory of mind. Yes. So theory of mind, um, which I, I'm sure we've discussed this in the past, but uh, it entails the ability of one person to understand another's pers- perspective, all right, to empathize with, communicate with, to deceive. And uh, if you'll think back to Blade Runner, uh, the uh, the motion picture, uh, mm-hmm. they had an empathy test to t- tell if someone was uh, a, a replicant, replicant yeah. you know, an android, a fake human, uh, or a real human. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was a rather elaborate test. But the, we actually have a test that we can use, uh, particularly on children, uh, because the, um, the the theory of mind only kicks in after a certain point. Uh, but this test is called the false belief test, and it goes like this. Child 1 and child 2 are playing with a marble in a room. When they're done, they put the marble in a box. Child 1 leaves, and child 2 takes the marble out and puts it in a bag. When child 1 returns to the room, where will she look for the marble? The correct answer is, of course, the box, where she left it last. But children under the age of four always pick the bag because they lack theory of mind. Mm-hmm. And so some researchers argue that this is because before that age, they lack the necessary language fluency to actually deal with the reality. Um, 
there was a New Scientist article from 2009 called Language May Be the Key to Theory of Mind. Um, and uh, in that article, they take a look at a fascinating case from Nicaragua in which a community of deaf people created their own sign language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, so they create their own sign language, and the next generation improved on that sign language. And when given the false belief test, the younger members with a more advanced sign language perform better on the test. And we see that too uh, with kids who are who have a steady diet of fiction, right? They mm-hmm. get a more nuanced idea of how other people's minds work because that is what theory of mind is really for. It's this idea that you could kind of map out someone else's intentions. So when you read fiction, all of a sudden you're able to exercise this ability. You identify with a character's longings and frustrations. You can guess at their hidden motives, their agendas, um, and the relationships in their lives. So this is a way of, of your brain trying to occupy someone else's, really. And this is actually called experience taking. And uh, when you are lost in fiction, it's a little bit different from perspective taking, right? Perspective Mm -hmm. taking, you can just kind of say, I identify, I I get what this person is going through. Experience taking is taking those experiences uh, for your own. And researchers at Ohio State University observed what happened when study participants lost themselves in fiction. Uh, They took a bunch of students and they had them read an engaging story about a person who had overcome adversities in order to vote that day. Mm. And they gave several different scenarios um, of this uh, this piece of fiction. And one of the different scenarios was that the, the protagonist went to the same school as the fiction readers, right? And, you know, another protagonist did not go to the same school. So what they found is that the, the people who... Um, who read the story about the protagonist going to the same school as them were something like 65% uh, likely to actually vote themselves or did vote themselves um, when they had to vote, you know, the next week or so in an election as compared to 29% of the readers who read about a protagonist from another school. So what you're seeing is actually like clear line of action from this piece of fiction uh, that they were absorbed in this person's uh, trials uh, and errors in trying to get to vote. This, this, um, you know, these obstacles in this protagonist's way to try to vote, and they felt so in line with her that it actually influenced their behavior. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, it's crazy when you think about like the nature of story. Because on one level, the story is how we remember things. It's how we process things that have happened to us. Mm-hmm. We discussed in the, this in the past. You, you. Take a series of events that just happened. You form the story in your mind in which you are the center character. Or if you're being, if you're able to empathize and use that theory of mind, then you're a, you're creating that's a similar story around another person to enhance your understanding of them. But story, do stories even really exist? Are they? They're kind of this linguistic viral thing that we have created to make sense of the world and to uh, to serve as the um, the bedrock for a culture, you know, because it's uh, you know, take the most accurate nonfiction book, the most not accurate, accurate nonfiction story mm-hmm. available, and you can p- still probably poke holes in it. You can say, is this really what is? Is this really what happened? And you have to say, no, it is a structure of what happened. It is a structuring of events and characters and people and attitudes and emotions um, that is presented in the form of story. Yeah, and I do think it is interesting it, that a lot of it has to do in the way that it is presented, mm-hmm. right, um, to, to motivate people. Um, 
and I mean, I'm thinking about a different study. Um, it was it was at Ohio State as well, and this one had to do with sexuality, and it was administered to 70 heterosexual men. And so again, they have this narrative of this young man in different scenarios. In one scenario, he's pretty much outed at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another scenario, he's outed later at the, in the story. And, um, and in the third, he's heterosexual. Well, what happened is that they found that, um, the, the people's attitudes toward this character when he was late outed, they, they felt much more, um, accepting of him as a homosexual when they found out after, after sort of identifying with him, after going through this journey with him in mm-hmm. this story, uh, as opposed to when he was outed at the very beginning. And so, that's why I think it's so fascinating that a lot of it has to do in the, in the way that um, we present the details, that we create these sort of realities, um, and that it would actually affect how we perceive people. Yeah, I mean, it's and you can kind of look at it, too, in terms of a nonfiction book, especially a nonfiction book about, say, political uh, issues. Mm-hmm. It's one person saying, hey, this is how the world works, and this is how it works best versus how it is broken. Uh, whereas a narrative puts you in the shoes of someone experiencing some uh, some some level of, of those events, and, and be it something that is supporting the uh, uh, an idea or opposing it, you know you're you're put in those shoes. Well, let's uh, let's uh, crack open a little bit of science here and uh, talk about mirror neurons and why we react the way we do to narratives, whether it's a text or a piece of music or a movie. All right, so the phase mirror neurons or mirror neurons, if you (laughs) want to say it together, refers to neurons in the frontal cortex that fire both when you do something and when you see something else uh, being done, when you see someone else doing it, okay? Uh, uh, And and, and very important here, a subset of these neurons fires during your own actions Mm -hmm. um, but inhibit when you just observe actions. So uh, that way the mirror neuron systems uh, signal whether the action in question is your own or somebody else's. Right, so that way you're not acting on on um, what you're seeing, right? right? So if you know that you're you're supposed to be the passive observer, then you don't try to go out on the baseball field and you know try to hit right. that ball. Um, so yeah, I mean, actually, that's that's a good example. When you perform an action like throwing a baseball for the first time, this behavior gets encoded in a clutch of brain cells. But um, scientists discovered that these brain cells also fire, as you say, when you see someone else perform the same action. And it also ends up sucking in emotional uh, entanglement as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where it really gets interesting. And if you want to see an example of this, I invite you to view any sporting event. Because you're True. seeing mirror neurons. Mirror, mirror neurons. It's like the rural juror. Rural uh, juror. Yeah. Mirror, mirror neurons. neurons. These are mirror neurons in action. When you go to the sporting event and you see a rabid crowd who's totally into the action on the field. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there is one small group of people who are playing a game and being paid for it. And uh, then there is there is a, another group of people, a larger group of people, that have paid to see the game and are not actually directly involved in the action. But their enthusiasm for it at times seems to not only equal but surpass that of the individuals on the field. And it, it comes down to mirror neurons. They're able to observe the actions of another, mm-hmm. uh, compare it to their own experience, and the emotional uh, context becomes intertwined between the two. What I think is really interesting is what happens when someone reads a text, right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you know how they're reacting to that? Um, and it turns out that you can actually map metaphor in the brain 
using MRI. Oh, yes. Uh, researchers from Emory University had uh, subjects read a metaphor, metaphor, <laughs> metaphor, metaphor, uh, involving texture and the sensory cortex uh, lit up here. And that the sensory cortex is responsible for perceiving texture through touch, right? That became active. So you had metaphors like the singer had a velvet voice and he had a leathery hand. And this roused the sensory cortex while phrases that matched for meaning like the singer had a pleasing voice and he had strong hands, did not. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what's so interesting about why our mind does engage so fiercely with literature or, you know, really any kind of fiction because, again, you're in that theory of mind and your ba- brain is reacting um, to these words. I love that. I love that a leathery hand can can make your sensory cortex go nuts. Um, and then, in a study led by the cognitive scientist Véronique Boulanger of the Laboratory of Language uh, Dynamics in France, um, she had them scan um, words like, or rather sentences like, John grasped the object and Pablo kicked the ball. And the MRIs revealed that there was, of course, activity in the motor cortex. So, to me, what this says is that Storytelling, fiction is really, I mean, if we've, if our motor, motor cortex is, is, uh, kind of lighting up here, all of this is really important into the way that we actually developed as human beings. That storytelling is intrinsic, um, to actually motivating us and motivating the different parts of our body. Um, it's not just, you know, st- part of our language center that is passive. Yeah, I found it interesting that, um, uh, you know, discussions of how mirror neurons allowed us to, uh, to survive in, our, in an early stage because we were able to put our mind uh, inside the mind of, say, uh, a predatory animal or an animal that is yeah. surviving a winter. We see how a bear is surviving, and we can put ourselves in its footsteps in a way that uh, it, it just cannot do. Um, and, and then I, the idea, too, that mirror neurons allow us to, uh, especially with metaphor, to essentially run a simulation based on that metaphor. Mm-hmm. Metaphor enters in, and we... No matter how silly or trite the metaphor, on some level we can't help but fulfill it. Take one of the most famous metaphors in the English language, comes from William Shakespeare, from As You Like It. It says, all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. So you can't help but on some level imagine then everyone in your life standing on this stage, following these lines, uh, entering in and out, and then there, there are various ramifications of, of what that scenario means. Likewise, metaphors that don't really work kind of fall flat because of that. Take, for instance, uh, this famous line, she's a brick house. Now, obviously, <laughs> in the same way that we're not actually all players on a stage, she, whoever she is, is not actually a brick house. Mm-hmm. And when I try to imagine this mysterious her as a brick house, I, it, it never works for me. Maybe I'm missing something, but I just imagine a woman made out of bricks. Well, this is <laughs> uh, it's attached to the song now, so of course there are parts of my brain that are singing it. Yeah, I mean, the song is up. the song is, is great, so it, it manages to make it foolish into thinking that this means something, where I'm not convinced it actually means anything. Or if it means anything, it means that someone made a woman out of bricks. Which is kind of cool, too. Yeah, in a kind of golem kind of way, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But not in a... Well, I Not think, in a funky way, that's what I'm saying. Right, right, in a get-down way. Um, but I think it's just so cool, too, about, you know, seeing that these mirror neurons are firing in the motor cortex is that it's not just the motor cortex. It's, it's actually, like, corresponding with what you're seeing. So if you're seeing someone pitch 
a baseball, mm-hmm. then your motor cortex neurons are firing in, in, in um, what would be related to the area that moves your arm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then also, if you see someone playing soccer and you see the leg movements, then it's the same thing. There's, that they're specific to the part of your body. So it's not just like, hey, this is the part of, the, of my brain that makes me move my limbs. It's your specific limbs. So yeah. I don't know. Cool well, stuff. Umberto Eco, in um, his, I believe it was in his book of essays, uh, Six Walks in the Fictional Woods, um, he spends a lot of time discussing just the nature of fiction. And he discusses it on all levels. He's talking about literary stuff. He's talking about comic books. He's talking about B-movies. And he's talking about pornography at times. Uh, all levels of storytelling. By the way, this perfectly, this whole conversation about mirror neurons explains pornography, right? Like yeah. if anybody's ever wondered why it exists, which I don't think anybody probably wonders that, mm-hmm. this is the reason right here, right? Well, indeed. And, and Echo goes into this a lot in, those, in that book. I, I recommend picking it up. But um, he discusses uh, particularly the use of everyday activities in certain books and certain films. For instance, he specifically mentions uh, the James Bond novels, mm-hmm. which if you read, say, Dr. No, a lot of crazy stuff happens. I mean, Bond is potentially shooting people. I believe in Dr. No in the book itself. He wrestles a giant squid. Uh, it's easy to forget when people get all uptight about um about the purity of James Bond in fiction versus film. Just <laughs> right. remember, he did wrestle a giant squid once. Sure. But, but then a lot of time is devoted in these books to Bond having dinner, to Bond eating things, um, or Bond having coffee, Bond doing things that we can relate to. Most of us cannot relate to being shot in the shoulder or wrestling a giant squid. There's only, we can only become so immersed in that activity. But if the author immerses us in these other activities that we do have experience with, Although I will say this, I was watching True Blood and there's this one point in which um, someone stabs another person in the hand with a fork. Uh-huh. Now, that's not the first time I've watched that on film, at least. Um, but I immediately pulled my hand up. Yes, out of fear. because you can relate to something like that far more than you can to, uh, I mean, horror movies are a great example of this and, and directors who understand horror and how uh, a version works uh, for the viewer. Uh, get this. If someone loses an arm, if like Arnold Schwarzenegger gets his arm blown off in a film or something, mm-hmm. um, we can't relate to that. Most of us cannot relate to that, what that could be, would be like. What Only Arnold like. can relate yeah. to that. It's, it's out of our experience. However, mm-hmm. if you have a character hold up their hand against uh, someone like strikes at him with a machete and they get a cut across the, the palm or something like that, mm-hmm. um, or even... Will like, you extrapolate that as like a paper cut times 10 or... Yeah, yeah, we can relate. Or just a paper cut. Have someone get paper cut in a film. You can have an entire horror film Those based hurt, on paper man. cuts. You know? But but we can relate to that. It's a more of an everyday event. And uh, in, anyway, uh, Umberto Eco goes into it... Uh, a lot more depth. He also gets into the use of everyday, I think it's car rides that he discusses in, uh, like, the way to tell if you're watching a regular film or a pornographic film mm-hmm. is how long a car ride lasts in the film. The longer it lasts, the more likely that you're watching a pornographic film. All right. Yeah. Okay, there we go. It's a marker. Um, all right. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we are going to talk about empathy and fiction. Can, can you increase your own empathy through fiction? And is there a downside to fiction? All right, we're back. So, empathy and fiction. As we mentioned earlier, uh, via mirror neurons, via theory of mind, mm-hmm. we're reading these stories, and we cannot help but become immersed in that character, be it James Bond wrestling a squid 
or um, the character in Zombie trying to kidnap somebody and keep them in their basement. All right. So, of course, I have to mention a study. Okay. By Washington and Lee psychologist Dan Johnson. He had people read a short story that was specifically written to induce compassion in the reader. And he wanted to see uh, not only if fiction increased empathy, but whether it would lead to actually helping someone. So he found that the more absorbed subjects were in the story, the more empathy they felt. And the more empathy they felt, the more likely the subjects were to help when the experimenter accidentally, in in quotation marks, uh, dropped a handful of pens. Uh, (laughs) The highly absorbed readers were twice as likely to help out, which I thought was interesting. Presumably, uh, the researcher does this while they're reading and they're absorbed in the text. I would think that that would be... They would be so absorbed that they wouldn't even notice the pens dropping. But that's a that's one little test uh, that has been carried out. And then there are studies published in 2006 and 2009 by Dr. Keith Oatley. This is the guy that was at the World Science Festival. Uh, he reports that individuals who frequently read fiction perform better on theory of mind tests regardless of gender. Because we've heard this before, that women are, are more compassionate or have more empathy and uh, is sometimes pointed to because of more mirror neurons that they possess. Um, but one such theory of mind test is called the mind's eye test, which participants look at photos of nothing but people's eyes and then have to describe what the people are feeling. We took this on the Facebook, didn't we? We did. Yeah. You, you, uh, it fits the stereotypes. You actually perform better on it than I did. I got a yeah. 30 on it, which and is... I got like a 24 or something. Yeah, I think the normal range is like 22 to 30. And anything over 30, like your super empathizer or something uh, like that. Wait, how did I... So what, what is bad under... Under 22. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. You cleared it by a couple points there. Um, but there's this idea that you could actually increase your own empathy through reading fiction. Hmm. Which is just sort of interesting, right? Because it's helpful. Well, what if you read stuff like Flatland? Uh, like Flatland and Flatland fan fiction, where you're just reading about shapes. Well, it, you know what? Here's the thing, though, is that you ascribe meaning to nearly anything. So yeah, that's th- true. There, there's this is a really cool. Um, thing that they did at the panel um, about the narrative of um, or the science of narrative, they actually showed a film of a circle, a square, and um, a triangle. And anyway, the shapes move around inside this box, and they kind of do things to each other. And uh, after they show the film, they said, "How how many of you saw a story in this?" And nearly everyone, except for like one guy, mm-hmm. raised their hand. And then they sort of say, well, who saw a female? And then other people would say, who saw a male? Who saw someone trying to trap this other person in a room? And it was amazing. Like, we can't help but to create these stories. Yeah. So we've we talked about We personify like mad gods and we, we storyify like uh, drunkards. Mad gods, like drunkards, yeah. Drunk mad gods. Um, but then there, there comes the question, could there be a possible downside to this? Well, um, I mean, the big thing here is that by engaging us uh, in these stories that uh, that often have uh, have important social context to them, we can we can use fiction to change the world for the better. Mm-hmm. But if we can change, uh, and when we say change the world, obviously none of these stories are altering physical reality, but they can adjust culture and the way we view the world, um, such as uh, the way some sitcoms uh, are able to uh, change the way and or influence the way that we view various social issues. 
Oh, right. There have been a bunch of studies that say that when people identify with characters, like such as um, the Modern Family, modern family the, the gay the characters there, yeah. that people are a lot more ex- accepting of them. Or even uh, our current vice president uh, said that uh, when, when talking about the gay marriage issue, um, he said that he was really won over from watching, uh, oh, what was it? Was it Will and Grace? Will and Grace, yes. Yeah. Which which everyone got a laugh out of that, but it, it lines up exactly with what we know about the power of of, uh, of fiction and particularly popular media to alter the way that we view the world. So that's the thing, right? Because when you are um, involved in f- fiction or some sort of narrative that is fictitious, you lose your sense of skepticism. And they've, uh, researchers have seen this over and over again. When you are reading something that you know that is nonfiction, then you're apt to be much more critical of it, uh, analyze a lot more. But if you know you're in a story... Mm-hmm. Uh, or you're lulled into a story, I guess you could say, um, then you, you do lose skepticism. Um, so if one sitcom could could influence me and help uh-huh. me decide that, yes, this group of people deserve rights that they don't have, could another sitcom potentially make me say, this group of people do not deserve certain rights? Well, um, yeah, actually, I mean, that's, that's the fear here. There's Jonathan Gottschall, um, who is also on the panel. Um, he wrote something called The Story Ta- Storytelling Animal, has said that we are suckers for story. Lab studies show that when we are deeply absorbed in a story, we lose our skepticism and we can be made to feel and believe just about anything the storyteller wants. And he actually brought up on the panel that that's mainly good, but then you think about the 1915 film The Birth of a Nation, yes, um, which inflamed racist sentiments. This is the one where the Ku Klux Klansmen are, are riding around like victorious knights, um, and, uh, and they're fighting the evil uh, black man. It's, I mean, it's it, it, it's it's a very interesting and important film in terms of film history. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if you've ever taken a history of film class, you've probably seen it or seen parts of it. Um, but it is not enforcing um, good moral. Uh, uh, ideas. Right, right. And it has, I mean, the, the, the plot line obviously has been manipulated to induce certain feelings. And right. that actually did, um, that, that gave sort of new life to the Ku Klux Klan um, when that film was shown. So, you know, he says it can go both ways. Um, there's also this idea of overconsumption of media. Okay. Um, now, when I say that. Is that a problem? It doesn't. Uh, well, see, this I don't, This is for an entirely different podcast, um, but I thought it was interesting to mention. And when I when I say media, I'm talking about games or gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, computer scientist Stuart Staniford says that the ro- <laughs> this is this is kind of interesting. I mean, it's a little bit out there. Said that as the robot population surpasses humans and takes most of our jobs, uh, that the least disruptive approach to managing this is for the underclass to disappear into technology mediated secondary universes. Um, and that he can't help but see video games imagined here as a widely used opiate. Hmm. Yeah. So I this can, is this idea. I'll buy that. Yeah. yeah, this is this idea of overconsumption. Um, because, you know, there's, there's this, um, other idea that back in the day, if you wanted a good story, you, you hoped that someone in your circle was a really great oral storyteller, right? Yeah. You would, yeah, have someone tell that story, that story or that joke or that, whatever that narrative experience, let's go and hear it. The storytellers come into town, you know. Let's, right. Let's go. Let's go hear what they have to say. But now, they, I mean, you can have any type of story, any which way you want it, um, from myriad uh, bits of media, right? Right. Um, and so there's an idea that it's really similar to an obesity epidemic that we evolved in a world where food was scarce, so we're very comfortable right now, and, and so that you have this idea of like 
there's there's too much on the plate for us to consume. Because back in the old days, there were there were only so many stories that could, that could really be passed around. You had right. you had the creation story, the end of the world story, um, and it, it is important, I guess. When I'm you know half joking there, but 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 certainly in the olden days, you had all these stories that that had definite meanings that were important culturally that, culturally that were the bedrock upon which civilization existed. Um, you I mean you had stories in which positive values were tested and found to be held true, negative values are tested and, and found to be false, where something simple is proven complex, where something complex is proven simple, uh, where the other is proven normal or the normal is proven other. I mean, these are all about maintaining a certain worldview. Mm-hmm. And, and, and today our, our stories, have, we have more of them, and some of them are are less involved in maintaining the fabric of our reality, but they're all still uh, engaging in that conversation on one level or another. Well, and to that point, I wanted to, to, to leave you with this, um, this quote from Jonathan Gottschall um, about storytelling. And no matter how much we consume or don't consume, he says, humans aren't really earthlings. Above all, we are citizens of an omnidimensional virtual world called Storyland. Of course, our bodies are always fixed at a particular time and place on planet Earth, but our minds are always free to voyage in storyland. And they do. They voyage through stories for most of the day and into the night. It's wrong to think of story as a mere frill in human life. We live most of our lives in various kinds of story. Story, as much as upright posture, tool use, language, or intelligence is what makes us human. So I thought it was really interesting because we talked about even daydreaming that that we uh, would we daydream like half of our uh, waking hours away, right? I'm sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> okay, yeah. Nice, nice. All right, well let's uh, pull open the mailbag. Bring it over here, Robot. I think it's funny that you call him Robot, but I call him Arnie. We have a different relationship with, well, with you, our robot. You you have more empathy. You, you're firing up more of those uh, mirror neurons. <sighs> Sheesh. Right? Do you think he has a limp? It looks like he's not walking correctly. <laughs> All right, so here's a little bit of listener mail from Anne. Anne writes in and says, Sorry for the slow response. I've been meaning to write and tell you how tickled I was to hear your honorary air response to my email below. And her email was the one about uh, uh, where she said just use the yeah. words and it was about... Uh, how I use frankenbeans to describe penis and uh, cojones. Yes, you did it again. With kind of, I, I, okay, but anyway, she was responding to, to that, and um, and and we uh, we addressed it, you know, and, and sort of we gave our perspective on uh, on presenting material for um, various age groups uh, and all. Anyway, she continues and says, uh, "It gave me an entirely new perspective on some of the pressures and issues you were dealing with. I stand by my opinion, but definitely understand your position better now." See, empathizing, like what you said. I know yeah. we can't help ourselves. Um, she says, I also wanted to let you know how much I've been enjoying the lucid dreaming theme. I'm a world-class dreamer. Last night's was a multi-generational saga set in the early 19th century. Nice. And often have quite bizarre dreams, dreams within dreams, whatever. But despite decades of interest in the topic, I've never managed a lucid dream. What I can't seem to do is make that first step in the process, knowing that you're dreaming and taking control. Oh, well, it doesn't stop me from flying and sometimes even underwater swimming, which is pretty cool and I think much more unusual than flying. All the best, Anne. Ooh, I'm going to try that. Underwater flying? Yeah. Well, I've, I've definitely had underwater dreams before. Like one where I was chasing a, a sorcerer across the ocean floor and he had a book or something. But The other night I just had one of those dreams where I thought I'd pee the, pee the bed. So 
those aren't very exciting. But happy ending. Well, I didn't. I did not pee the bed. So. Oh my goodness. Yeah. What well, have you had these dreams before? No, yes. I'm okay. sorry. There's so much. Uh, there's so many words there that I want to play off of, but I won't. Out of interest of of um, keeping it clean, folks. Okay. Well, I, I just find it interesting because I was talking to a group of friends, and out of four or five of us, only two of us claim to have had dreams in which they were peeing the bed, and then woke to find. The, find that they had not so oh well you know i actually i I do take that back now that i'm focusing more um yeah my body's mainly is is basically saying hey you need to get up and use the restroom yeah yeah flying is better i'm I'm not i'm not something everybody wanted to know there you go yeah let's keep to the flying all right well uh hey if you want to write into us and you want to let us know about your fiction versus reality um Idea. Like, where, where do you stand on this? How do you think fiction uh, alters our perceptions of reality? Or does it, uh, as with the works of, say, Sutter Kane, actually change physical reality? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook, where we are stuff to blow your mind. Or you can find us on Twitter, where we are blow the mind. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.